Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you for your word. We ask that your word will challenge us, um, that your word will change us, that your spirit will illuminate our hearts with the light of your word. Let no one who is here or watching online live the same uh, from how they were when they came or when they tuned in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, we're doing a a, a sort of series around some of the um, characters who were part of that great weekend uh, that we all celebrate, uh, the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. And um, it's a series that that, that I find interesting. I, I actually didn't think it was a series. I just did one person, but led to another person. And so, of course, you remember the first person we did was the African African man, um, who Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross. Um, and then the second one we did last week were the two robbers uh, who were crucified with Jesus, the uh, repentant robber on one side, the unrepentant robber on the other side. So today we want to talk about the man who loaned Jesus his tomb. Yeah? The man who loaned Jesus his tomb. Um, His name is Joseph. He came from a place called Arimathea. All the four Gospels actually reference him and what he did. And the beauty of the Gospels is that because these are real stories that are told by real people, whilst they all reference him and the incident, they come from so many different angles in terms of what they focus on. So Matthew 27 verses 57 to 61 talks about him being a rich man named Joseph. Let's us know he was a disciple of Jesus. And of course that he went to Pilate and took Jesus' body from Pilate and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. Um, uh, Mark says it with a bit more uh, a, a, a bit more detail. Mark 15 verses 42 to 47. Uh, Mark references when it happened the, the 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 evening before the Passover, and that's significant. Um, he tells us Mark that he was a prominent council member who was waiting for the kingdom of God. He tell, talks about his courage in going to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Uh, It mentions that Pilate was amazed that Jesus was already dead and asked if it was true that Jesus was dead. Um, And when he was told he was, he then gave the body to Joseph. And it tells us how Joseph bought linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in in a tomb and rolled a stone against it. And mentions that there were observers. Some of the ladies were observing all these things. Mary uh, Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Luke is probably the, the, the shortest. It tells us he was a council member. And critically, Luke 23, 50 to 54, it mentions that he was a good and just man. It gives us a character analysis of him. And then it also tells us that he did not agree with those who said they should crucify Jesus. Um, it tells us, of course, where he was from, uh, Luke's gospel, um, and tells us also what the others say um, concerning him. And John, maybe the longest, John 19, 38 to 42, um, it starts by telling us he was a disciple of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea. It tells us that he was a secret disciple. That's very important. Uh, that, and he was that secret disciple because he was afraid of the Jews. Um, and how he went to Pilate and asked Pilate, for permission, somebody who understood authority, for permission to take down the body. Um, And then critically, John mentions something no one else mentioned, that the process of burying him wasn't just, just done by Joseph, but that there was another secret disciple, Nicodemus, 
who came together with Joseph to go through the process of preparing him for being buried. And then John also tells us about the cost of the burial. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't peanuts. It was significant. They used some of the most expensive spices that could be used, most of, ex, expensive things that could be used to embalm a body, um, aloes and myrrh, and that it cost a hundred pounds in those days. That's, that's serious money. Uh, it tells us that these were men of means. They had the money to be able to give the kind of burial that only the richest in society had. Um, and they did that and put him in, in, the, in the tomb. And, and, and so you put the four together, you get the picture. Um, this secret disciple of Jesus who'd been following Jesus and had committed himself to Jesus but hadn't come out openly about it. When Jesus died, something happened to him. And he thought, you know what? I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to go to Pilate. He had status. He had influence. He had wealth. Um, and so that gave him access to, to Pilate. There was a risk, of course, that he could lose all those things. But something had happened that made him think, I'm going to take the risk. He goes to Pilate with his wealth uh, backing him, with his, his status. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, there were 71 members of the Sanhedrin, and he was one of the 71. The Bible says he was actually a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Um, that's the, the ruling council that, that would oversee the life of the Jews, everything to do with their religion, which was really their life. And he goes to, to Pilate. He has access to him because of his status. He asks Pilate um, if he can have the body. He gets Pilate's permission takes the body. We understand that when he takes the body, he needs to bury the body. He buries the body in a tomb, which happens to be his own tomb. Um, because, of course, being a man of status, he had already prepared for his burial. Um, he gets Nicodemus to help him prepare the body, and he buries him. Yeah? Now, just before we get into the story, uh, I, I, I want you to, into some life lessons, I want you to just journey with me and let's just imagine what was happening to this man, Joseph of Arimathea. Not just him, all the disciples of Jesus. Yeah, because we have the privilege of reading the end, and sometimes we don't understand the story fully because we know the end. But for them, their hope had been extinguished. Their expectation had been cut off. It was a dark, gloomy period. They were grieving and grieving deeply. They had put all their hope in him as Messiah, as their Savior, their Lord. They believed everything he had said about the power of his Father in heaven. And then they had watched as he was arrested, tried, eventually crucified, and right before them, he had expired. He had died. Their dreams were shattered. Their lives were in free fall. What did tomorrow hold? Most of them had gone into hiding. Because of course, if he had been tried and crucified like a common criminal, like a revolutionary, wouldn't the Romans now start to hunt down his, his supporters and his disciples? It was in that state that he went to ask for Jesus' body. Now you and I know that the resurrection was coming. But Joseph had no way of knowing that there was going to be a resurrection. He was risking everything for something that had come to an end. He just wanted a decent burial for this, his master. Because if he didn't go and collect the body uh, from, from, from him, a couple of things would happen. The body would be piled up with all the other bodies awaiting a time of burial. Or they could decide that there are not enough graves, so just cast these bodies outside the city gates and the vultures would devour the body. Or they could decide, you know what, create a communal grave and toss all these bodies into the communal grave. And for Joseph, he couldn't allow that to happen to his saviour. And so he goes and collects the body. What life lessons 
can we learn from this? Let's go to some life lessons. The first one is one that has repeated itself through all the accounts of Simon of Cyrene, the African man from northern Libya who carried the cross, the robbers who were hanging by Jesus, and it repeats itself here. And what is the first one? The account authenticates scripture and confirms the identity of Jesus as Messiah and the Son of God. Seven, eight hundred years before, a prophet is prophesying and he says in Isaiah 53 verse 9, this is the New Living Translation, he had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Can you beat that? Clearly prophesying what is happening. And once more, what this does for us is that it, it encourages us about the authenticity of Scripture. It encourages us about the authenticity of the Word of God. Encourages us to hold on to it, embrace it, believe it. Because it's not the Word of a man, it's the Word of God. He prophesies that he that is coming will be buried in a rich man's grave. Without knowing that he's fulfilling prophecy... Simply moving because of the compassion of his heart, his love for his Savior. Joseph of Arimathea fulfills prophecy by burying our Savior in his grave, a rich man's grave. I want to encourage us. If there's anything that is going to change the church, prepare the church. Anything that is going to empower the church. That's why what Pastor Badge is doing with the incubator is so important to us. It has to be the foundation of the word of God. Believe me, the amount of work that Satan goes into to make sure you and I are not in the word of God, you would not believe it if you knew it. You can't, you can't do better than making it a habit to daily Read the word, study the word, and the two of things are different. Meditate on the word and speak the word. You can't do better for yourself than that. The best thing that you can do for yourself is to cultivate that habit, inculcate it into your life, fight for it like your life depends on it, because your life depends on it. Man cannot live by bread alone, we were told. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father, fight for it like your life depends on it. I actually want to set you a task. I want you to take a three-month period and say to yourself, for the next three months, I am going to do exactly what I've heard. And then I want us to have a conversation after the three months is over, Praise God. So do that. And let's see if your life changes. Number one, it authenticates him as Messiah and he, the scripture. Number two, these scenes, actually this, this whole thing playing out, tells us that ordinary people, regular people, play a critical part in God's plans. Because yes, he was a man of status. But he was a man who, historically they tell us, was a businessman. In modern day terms, he would be somebody who works in the marketplace. Or someone who's an entrepreneur. And who serves in church. And maybe he has become the head of a team in church. Or is part of a team in church. Maybe even a deacon or a deaconess. But his life was regular. If you transpose that to today, he would have a nine-to-five job. He'd be working in the civil service, working in a care home, working for some multinational, working in the city, maybe in politics. 
I'm going to church, very committed to church. And I'm sure if you and I wrote the story, we would have said, let it be the pastor or the bishop. Or why not the general overseer? I mean, that's correct. To do this major task of burying Jesus. But who does God find? Someone who's not even mentioned after that. Someone who comes from a place called Aramathia. Who has heard of, of, of Aramathia? Someone who's not as famous as the other Josephs. So they have to tag on where he comes from so that we understand he's not the other famous Josephs. Someone who runs a business. I don't know what he did. Selling cattle. Trading in gold. Selling olive oil. I, I'm not sure what he did. But he's a regular guy. And God says he's the one he's going to use. You've got to ask yourself the question, where were Jesus's, where was Jesus' family? Because the tradition was that with permission, the body was released to the family. The family wasn't there. Where were his disciples? They'd walked with him, lived with him. The closest people to him. Where were they? Nowhere to be found, all in hiding. Who steps forward at this critical moment in history? A regular guy who's just finished calculating his profit and loss is the one who steps forward to receive the body of our Lord and Savior so that he can be buried. That's why I love the greenhouse community stuff we're doing. Because what are we doing in the greenhouse community? We're empowering regular people. I mean, I looked at the group. We, we kind of look like, all of us look like a bit of a ragtag bunch, Io. We, I mean, look at the group. What, what can these people do to change anything, me included? But then as they began to share their passions, what they want to do, I began to think this is like God to use people like this who have come forward to say, you know, there's something burning in my heart. And to use them to make a difference. And do you know, Joseph could have thought, but it's not my responsibility. And isn't that how a lot of things drop in the kingdom? It's not my responsibility. Somebody else has got to do it. We drive into church and we see something that's not right. We walk by it. Why do we walk by it? Because it's not my responsibility. They must have somebody in charge of it. There must be a team dealing with it. We don't even bother to even say, have you noticed so and so? Have you noticed that the sign is upside down? We see the sign upside down and we just tut tut, mm, upside down sign. But here was a man who said, there's nobody to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to step forward and receive the body. It's not my responsibility. But I'm going to do it. How many of you are going to say that? It's not my responsibility. But I'm going to do it. The third thing. The third thing that strikes you. We learn a life lesson from. Is that he was a secret disciple. Now many of us will understand that. We love Jesus, but in this work environment, let's just get on with it. We would even say to ourselves, nobody needs to know. I don't need to make any noise about it. The, tr the real reason is because we are running away from the awkwardness of it, from being mocked or ridiculed. And you'd be amazed that People can walk with people, live with people 10, 20 years and not even know that they are followers of Jesus. You know, when I was uh, driving up to Harrogate, I called a friend of mine, Ken Costa, mentor and friend. And he had written a book. He's written a book about Joseph of Arimathea. Um, his story is quite compelling, actually. When I was thinking about this, there are two people I thought about who remind me of Joseph of Arimathea. 
two people who are close to me, two people who are, you know, blessed by God, very stupendously wealthy. And two people who reminded me of Joseph. Ken was one of them. And Ken, I called him. I had four hours to Harrogate, so we were talking to each other. And we talked a lot about Joseph. And interestingly, he told me that in his 20s, he went to a meeting and an American prophet suddenly called his name. And when he came out, the American prophet prophesied to him and, and told him that he's going on a journey like Joseph of Arimathea. This probably was, what, 45 years, 45, 50 years ago, whatever it was, 40 years ago. And so we kind of talked about Joseph of Arimathea. And, and we, we, one of the things that we talked about and that he writes about in the book is that, I mean, he's worked in the city all his life. He's the top, he got to the top as an investment banker, um, rep for representing the, the prime minister um, to two or three of the countries in the Middle East. And he, he talks about the challenge of faith in a secular workplace. And some of you understand it. How do I, how do I live out my faith? Do I have to live as a secret believer? No one knows what I do on Sunday. No one knows that I love this Jesus, that I have a commitment to him. Not because I'm throwing it in everybody's face, but then am I not the epistle that God writes on so that others can see? And I can understand it if, you, if people are secret believers. Even in your family. But then something happened to Joseph that made him risk everything. He had an encounter with Christ at the death of Christ. Something happened that Friday that made someone who had been a secret follower of Jesus for so long decide, you know what? It doesn't matter. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Whatever the cost is, I just love Jesus. I'm tired of hiding what is the most important thing to me, my love for Jesus. But then let's not be quick. This moves me to my fourth point. Let's not be quick to condemn anyone who's going through that. Let's understand it. Because as the scriptures tell us, he was a secret believer because of his fear of the Jews. He was terrified by the fear of persecution. John says that in the 19th chapter and the 38th verse. Being a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews. And it's real. It's real in our world today. It's real with the cancel culture that exists in this world today. Persecution for you and I is real. And it is wise that we know, we expect it, we prepare for it. Thankfully, the Bible encourages us by telling us that there is a blessing in persecution. Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. This is Jesus speaking. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus says you're blessed when they do that. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love the passion rendition of that. How ecstatic you can be when people insult and persecute you and speak all kinds of cruel lies about you because of your love for me. So leap for joy, since your heavenly reward is great, for your being rejected the same way the prophets were before you. You know, a, a lot of people in the church hope it will be another way. We kind of hope that we don't have to go through this. Is there not another way? Well, Jesus himself tells you it comes with the territory. That you are going to be persecuted because, of, because you love him. And it... In a world where the world demands a fluidity in everything. A world where the world demands that 
There's no submission to a moral code. No submission to the authority of God. A world that encourages an independence from God completely. A world that refuses to accept that there are certain things that are absolute truths. The world hates that word, an absolute truth. A world that attacks all the values, most of the values that we know. If you stand for Jesus in such a world, how many know that it's a no-brainer that you're going to get persecuted? If you don't join the fluidity that allows anything, that allows the metamorphosis to take place from week to week, month to month, if you don't join this, this, this thing, then the world wants to cancel you. You know, a pastor called me yesterday. She's always going to hold her breath now and think, Agu, should you be saying that? A pastor called me yesterday and he was agitated. You know, he said, you know, he said, he said, Pastor, we have to pray. We have to war. We have to fast. I said, what is the problem? He said, the honor that should come your way is not coming your way. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, someone who was close to him was in a circle. And the circle was discussing me in, in, in the highest places. And the circle was saying, that particular, that particular honor, we determined not to give it to him. And they laughed about it. And the person who was there, serving, goes to his church and told him that, can you believe what happened? So he called me. So I said to him, I said, nah, 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 nah. Honor does not come from man. Honor comes from God. I said, the challenge they're having is because I have taken certain positions based on my faith. I have no intention of changing them on this side of eternity. Absolutely none. They are based on my submission to God. Will that mean some things don't come my way? Absolutely yes. Will that mean I get some stripes on my back? Definitely. What does Paul say to his protege, Timothy? In 2 Timothy, the third chapter and the 12th verse. He says this. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Hey, what does he say? He says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus should prepare for persecution. Everyone is not the pastor, not the bishop, not the elder, not the deacon. Everyone is the guy who walks in the city, the lady who walks in the council, the doctor who's, who works for the NHS, the driver, the bus driver, the teacher in the school. As long as that person in this world wants to live a godly life in Christ, that person should expect that part of that journey will involve persecution. The politician, oh my God. <laughs> That is one of the hottest places to be now and to be a Christian. And Joseph got to a point where he thought, you know what? I'm tired of this secret life. Whatever the cost is, let's pay it. Number five. Number five. Number four was he was terrified by the fear of persecution. Number three was that he was a secret disciple. Number five, Joseph teaches us how to use what God has blessed us with. It's a big lesson in his life. 
He was wealthy. He was rich. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says you were rich. Believe me, you are rich. In a material sense. He had status. He was a prominent member of the council. He had a good reputation. His status came with influence. He had two things that God had blessed him with. Money and influence. But he understood what a lot of us haven't got deep into the core of our being yet. That these things were given to him for the sake of the kingdom. There's a metaphor, powerful metaphor that God gave me. Here was a man who used what he had to preserve the physical body of Christ. To prevent the body of Christ physically from being scavenged. He used what he had. The two things he had in abundance. Money and influence his status. So, see it as a metaphor. The body of Christ now is what? Talk to me. It's the church. So where are the Josephs of Aramathia who are willing to sacrifice everything to make sure that the body of Christ, the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is preserved, is strengthened, is protected from scavengers by using what God has given them. And what has God given every single one of us? Time, talent, and treasure. So how much of your time is being given to help the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Joseph could have said, I don't have the time. It's too risky. I could lose everything. I can't come. I can't attend. He could have said, I, I, don't, I don't want to do it. I don't have the the, the, the resources to divert, to give to that cause. And is the church not limping because we don't have those who have the spirit of Joseph in the church to step out sacrificially? And you know what Joseph gave as well? He gave his talent. Somebody says to me, what was his talent? He was a businessman. He understood that what is needed is a plan, a strategy from start to completion to get that body off the cross and bury that body. He executed the plan. There's so much that God has given us. We're using it in the secular without understanding that there's no demarcation for you between the secular and the sacred. You are you're born in the sacred. You're born again into the sacred. You're born into Christ. You carry Christ with you. You don't drop Christ and go into the secular. You, you can't do that. You're a child of God. And so what he's given you as a gift, a talent, a skill... What are you doing with that to preserve and affect the body? You're an expert, but we have to go and pay consultants to help us. And yet you're doing it for some company that's paying you money. What would it have cost you if you said to the church, this is a talent I have. I can give you two hours. That's your time. I'll do it every evening for a period. And yes, don't bother to pay me. You know, today we were saying in our pastor's meeting that everybody wants to be paid for what they do. Can you imagine Joseph going, going to Jesus' family to say to them, I'm going to bury your, your, your brother Jesus and it's going to cost you people, um, you know, where you, 100 pounds. That's what myself and Nicodemus are spending on Jesus, 100 pounds. So you people go and gather 100 pounds. Collect 100 pounds for me. That's how the church has become. The graces God gave us, we sell it 
to the church. A commercial spirit. So much talent in Jesus' house. We know that. But for everything we do, we've got to go out there and find somebody else who does it. Because somehow, the enemy has played a game on us. And he gave his treasure. He gave his money. He was a rich man. And he didn't give his money and make a demand. He gave the money. And I speak specifically to, not to those who are in the marketplace, yes, and also to the businessmen and women. How is this work going to go, go forward? The, the, the lady who's working as a teacher, she do her best. But she has a salary as a teacher. She gives sacrificially. She gives her offerings. She gives her tithes. She gives. But we, we'll need, we'll need 10,000 teachers on what they are paid. But then God has given someone an entrepreneurial spirit. A business mind like Joseph. That person can accumulate all that wealth for themselves. That's not Joseph's spirit. That person has to understand something that I came to understand a long time ago. That like the wise king says in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11, I returned under the sun and saw that the race is not to the swift. It's not those who are fastest who win the race. Haven't you noticed that? Some people have all it takes, but they don't win the race. The battle is not to the strong. There are strong people who are fighting battles. And we're amazed that they lose the battles. They have everything naturally. No bread to the wise. Trust me, there are many people who have wisdom, but are struggling for bread. No riches to men of understanding. You know, in my, in my culture, my, my village, I was laughing about this with my father. I was saying to him that this culture is very interesting. You can have all the solution to the village's problem. But if you don't have money, if you stand at the village meeting and speak, sit down. People are talking, you're talking. But I have the answer to your problem. They say, answer. If you had the answer, look at your life. Your answer would have sorted out your life. Sit down. So I was saying to my father, this is crazy and irony. You have to have wealth and status. So when you stand to speak, they say, uh, what is he saying? And you say to them what you have to say, then everybody goes in that direction. So there are men of understanding who just don't have the riches. And the Bible actually says that. That the poor man has the solution to the city's problem, but the city doesn't care because the man is poor. No favor to men of skill. Because you know that. Skilled men and the door doesn't open. But he says, but time and chance happen to them all. So when you're in a place where time and chance has favored you because the God of favor has caused it to happen for you. You came out of uni, you got a job immediately. Do you know how many people are waiting still? How many I'm praying for one or two years after they haven't really got a job? You've got to know that the God of time and chance has caused time and chance to favor you. So you can't, wa you can't waltz off into your fancy job and forget that you're part of your responsibility is the body of Christ. That's what Joseph understood. He blessed me with this money for such a time as this. His body is not going to be thrown into a communal grave. Scavengers won't, won't deal with his body. Let's move on. We're going to bring it to a close very quickly. Number six, it teaches us the power of collaboration. John tells us that. It says, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips and with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. He didn't do it alone. He understood the power of collaboration, the power of community. That's why I'm excited about the greenhouse community. I saw those 
30 people, 15 of them online, 15 here. And I thought, these guys are building community. Our strength is in doing it together. You know, as we forge the new, I sit with different strategy teams. And I'm just grateful to God for the various teams and the leadership of this church. Because we all bring different skills. You know, some of the teams I sit with, the people are very process-driven. And it is brilliant to be process-driven. We mustn't get to a place where part of the challenge of the church is that we think prayer alone is going to solve everything. No, prayer leads to action. The battle at Amalek was won because two things happened. Exodus 17. Moses climbed the hill, raised the rod, in the position of intercession. Thankfully, Aaron and her went with him. And then Joshua went into the valley and engaged the enemy. Joshua did the processes. He did the systems. Moses did the praying. Aaron and her initially just did what a lot of people do in church. They were watching, observers. But then Aaron and her noticed something. When this man's hands are up, Joshua is making progress. When the man's hands come down, because the man was getting old, Joshua starts to lose ground. When prayer is up, intercession is up. And wait for the new with prayer that I'm going to share with you. Exciting what God wants to do with prayer. Exciting. I'm buzzing. When prayer is up, then processes work. Systems work. The right people show up. Strategies come. Engagement takes place. The kingdom moves. When prayer flags collapse, processes become confused. People enter silos. People start to quarrel. The choir sings off key. The keyboardist is late. Multimedia, their systems crash. If they don't crash, they don't like the leader. The, the ushers are saying, why is hospitality stepping into our territory? Everybody becomes territorial because there are no prayers. The marshals are irate and irritated because they are dealing with a mixed multitude that, that behave like the children of Israel. But when prayers are up, it flows seamlessly. So Aaron and her noticed. So Aaron and her said, uh-huh. Sir, sit down. This your legs can take it. And then they held his hands up on either side. And as they did that, the system worked. The processes worked. The people brought their talent. The businessmen came and women came forward and gave. Even those who were not businessmen and women gave sacrificially. The five strands suddenly started to come into being. Hubs started to pop up everywhere. The base was strong and full of life. The, the incubator started to be birthed all over the place. The greenhouse grew from strength to strength. Rivers began to be birthed all over the place. And Jesus' house entered a new dimension. Because of prayer and what was happening in the valley. And you know, they had community, Nicodemus and Joseph. Guess why? They had things in common. They knew what it is to be secret disciples. When they met, they talked to each other. That's why we encourage community. Find people like you. You're young. You just came out of uni, find people who came out of uni and hang. Christians, share stories and encourage each other. And in the new, we're providing so many support groups. You've gone through a divorce. Don't let the enemy tell you that you're stigmatized. No. We believe in a God of a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. You've lost a loved one. Nobody can understand what it's like. One of the most irritating things I had when my late wife, if he went to be with the Lord, was when people would say, don't cry. I said, don't cry. Don't let me pray for your own wife to die or your husband. Then you'll know what 
What do you mean don't cry? And crying is not just the tears. It's the crying of the heart. You don't understand it. So Pastor Denrele can set up grace to graces to reach women who have gone through a tough period and have suffered abuse, mental, physical, whatever it is. Because, of course, unfortunately, she, she had to deal with that. So there's a kindred spirit. And the list goes on and on. When businessmen hang together, they talk a different language. They genuinely talk a different language. So the businessmen should get together and encourage each other. The businessmen and women in Jesus' house should be the ones coming up to me to say, uh, Pastor, that announcement you made on the stage for the Jubilee thing, how much did you say it was that you needed? 42,000 pounds. Don't bother the church with that. Um, there are 10 of us. Uh, I'll give 12. Each person will give 10. That's how church works. And they're not doing it and saying, this church people, we give 10. So when I come, I want to sit next to Pastor Agu. If Pastor Agu does not sit me between him and, and Pastor Shola, they will know in this church that somebody is financing this church. Don't do that. Quietly. The second person that this reminds me of, and I know he's watching. Uh, I know my family knows who he is. He's like that. Quietly. Quietly facilitating the kingdom quietly. Stupendous sums of money, no announcement. That's when you know you're a real treasurer. Stupendous sums, no announcement. When you give the, if, if pastor, it's 42,000 you're looking for. Ah, pastor, there's too much to do in the new. I'll sort out the 42,000. And please don't mention it to anybody. That's how it works. So God gets the glory. And Hebrews 6 verse 10 works. God is not unjust to forget the labor of love of those who labor in love towards the saints. You gave us your time. You took time off. Between contracts, you gave us a month. I'm an IT person, so I've saved enough. I'll give you a month. You didn't say, Pastor, you didn't mention it on the pulpit that I've given you a month. I'm reducing it now by two weeks. No more a month. <laughs> They had something in common. That's why they collaborated well. And lastly, I end on this note. Joseph had character. That was the testimony. He's a good and just man. He loves justice and fairness. I'd love to talk a bit more about this, but I've run out of time. So let me just say this to end that about character. You can't go further than your character. God himself won't allow it because if we allow it, we will become an accident that will affect the whole thing. So a lot of us are held where we are because our character can take the next level. And how do we build character? Thank God for all the books that are out there. But I have learned from experience that if the books don't reference the work of the Holy Spirit, it is a temporary attempt to solve what you don't want to become a permanent problem. It is how much the Spirit becomes part of us that builds character. The African elders say that when you take the African black soap, and you use the local soap dish in Africa, in the countryside in Africa, which is not some plastic thing that wants to destroy the world, but is the leaf of a tree. That when you put the black soap in the leaf of the tree, the soap, soap covering of the tree, the soap covering in the African countryside, after a while, the green leaf becomes black. Because the soap has, has become and the leaf have become worn. When the spirit of God becomes worn with us, we have no choice. We don't even know when we are exhibiting the character of the spirit. And Paul puts it like this. And I end on this note with this scripture. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. The Passion Translation. 
But the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its varied expressions. Joy that overflows. Peace that subdues. Patience that endures. Kindness in action. A life full of virtue. Faith that prevails. Gentleness of heart and strength of spirit. That's character. And then he goes on to say, never set the law or religion above these qualities, for they are meant to be limitless. Can someone say amen? Go and give God a clap offering. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you and we bless you. Thank you for challenging us with the life of Joseph of Arimathea. And there might be someone who's watching or in this auditorium. You haven't given your life to Jesus, accepted him as your Lord and Savior. That's the start of this journey. Everything I've said can't stand on any other foundation. And if you want to do so, why don't you do that now? How do I do it, someone asks? By just opening your heart and inviting him in by your confession and believing the confession you make. It's as simple as that. Why is it so simple? Because of the weekend that we spoke about. He's paid the price on the cross for our sins. So if you want to do that, will you say this prayer after me? Heavenly Father, today I invite your son Jesus into my life. I receive him as my Lord and Savior. I make a commitment to live in a life that will please you from today. I turn away from anything I'm doing that is offensive or sinful as I accept you as my Lord. I accept your Son as my Lord and Savior and you as my Father. By my confession, I declare that I am now a child of yours, born again today into your family. Thank you for this gift of love in Jesus' name. And together with them, we say amen and amen. Praise God. And church, the Bible tells us that the angels are doing a jig and a dance in heaven at this point in time. You can't look so sad and glum when the angels are celebrating. So why don't you celebrate with them? Hallelujah. Amen and amen.